the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. The Wall Street Business Network presents Rob Black and Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finances, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800 516 1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network. Good day and welcome in. I'm Rob Black talking money, investing, and more. Netflix. Remember when Netflix brought you goodness, DVD goodness in a red envelope? And you can keep it as long as you want it. And then things changed in Netflix. Now you, they're dominating the television series business. They've taken that crown from HBO. Who took it from? Who took it from? My, they kind of invented it. That cable was better than TV. And then streaming is better than cable TV. Right? I'm so excited about Westworld. They did Shogun World recently. But then Netflix has got lost in space. I haven't seen the last episode of that one yet. I'm holding it off. It's like that last piece of meat that you're savoring for finishing dinner. That's like yummy, yummy last bite. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. But get this. Netflix DVD business still in business. And it's still profitable. Company is barely more than 3 million DVD subscribers compared to 125 million streaming subscribers, but the company has no reason to kill that business yet. It still earns money. It showed an operating profit of 56 million on 99 million in revenue in the first quarter. DVD plans range from 5 bucks a month to 12 bucks a month, while streaming plans are 8 to 14 a month. Fascinating, right? You would have thought maybe that business is gone and is no more. But nope. Not so much. The tech bubble is something I've learned about firsthand in the 1990s. I came to the Bay Area 20 plus years ago, and one of the things I noted, well, it was about 20 years ago, one of the things I noted then was when I would go to the marina, the marina Safeway, everyone was good looking, like really good looking. I wasn't bad looking. I'm not chopped liver, you know, but... 15, 20 years ago, everyone was six foot or taller. And I'm like six foot one, six foot two. And I'm like, I'm not used to being the shortest guy in the safe way. But man, Silicon Valley was able to pull people out and people wanted to live in San Francisco. 
lot of people worked for companies that were fascinating. Who do you work for? And it would almost be garage.com or garagedoor.com or frontdoor.com. You're like, what do you do? Front doors? Yes. And what are you going to do? Future. Backdoor.com. And you're like, whoa. And you're you're pulling six figures and that's your business model? There was a company that wanted to figure out how to make the internet smell. There's a great book called... It's not a nice word, what I'm about to say. But... The company, the, the the book is fantastic. I'll read chapters from it one day. It's basically a play on F apostrophe ED, companies. So you know what it means. Companies that are hurt, companies that are damaged, companies that are, are, you know, not in a good position to really succeed over the long term. And we grew to call these companies unicorns. When these startups valued at more than a billion dollars have pulled in a ton of venture capital, and now it's time to sell that idea to John Doe or John Average, Joe, Joe the Plumber. And like the best example of that in 2017 was probably Blue Apron, who is one of those companies that we've all seen the commercials for. And the idea of cooking kits at home, not a bad idea. You know, anyone who's tried it said, you know, the, the fruits were a little bit better than you can get at the store, believe it or not. And everything was properly chilled, believe it or not. And the ingredients were pretty uh, slim, so you didn't have to buy a lot of oregano that's going to go bad. So the peak of the tech unicorn bubble is always going to be talked about. The age of the unicorn is always fascinating. In 2014, there were 42 new unicorns in the United States. These are companies that have a value of a billion dollars, but are still private. And a lot of people think they're up to 50% overvalued. You know, Uber's worth billions and billions and millions of dollars, but they're private, so they're considered a unicorn until they come public, until we get to see what they're actually losing and see what they're actually doing in business. In 2014, there were 42 new unicorns, companies that were created that we said, if they come public, are going to be worth over a billion dollars. In 2015, there were just 43. Now, the unicorn market hasn't hit that number again in a long time since then. In 2017, there's just 33 new U.S. companies that achieved unicorn status. This year, there have been 11 new unicorns created, according to PitchBook data. But those numbers tend to move around, and, you know, obviously, in the middle of the year, you don't know what's going to happen. But right now, there there, there used to be a a business model in the 90s that I, I lived through. And you did too, probably on some level. It was called get big, get big fast, and then IPO. In 1999, the average life of a tech company before it went public was four years. Today, it's 11 years. So back then, you come up with an idea, you borrow money from venture capitalists, and you spend like crazy to get revenues. And then you go to Wall Street and you say, look. Our revenues are going at, growing at 50 to 100%. We want it to sell this story to Main Street. And they did. But now there's fewer and fewer unicorns out there. Investors are focusing on you know, growing the customer base, not necessarily profit, until profit turns into something important. And it always does. 
I've asked analysts before, you know, what's the most important thing going forward? And it's always earnings. It's all about earnings on Wall Street. So new regulation beginning with the Jobs Act allowed unicorns to have far more shareholders before they disclose their financials publicly. And you don't remember that. And we change the rules on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, we don't really ask a lot of questions until they become public. And then we don't really know a lot. And it's one of the reasons I stay away from companies that have only been trading for one year on the public markets. It's because we don't know. It's like Snap sounded like a great idea, but when they came public, if you waited, you kind of learned that their management's a little cuckoo in the, in the, a little loco in the cocoa. Now, shares surged 44 plus percent for Snap on its first day. So some people are making money, but as it settled in, the company's not. And the company, uh, you're seeing, oh, we're all about Snap Stories. We're all about Snap Stories. And then you see Facebook has copied the feature, and they've got more Facebook Stories than Snap has Snap Stories. Dropbox goes public. It has a big pop its first day. But Dropbox only has 200,000 paying customers. And they'll say, but we have 500 million users, but only 200,000 pay. That's like you know me coming home and saying to the wife, you gave me money for groceries and... Look, I bought these magical seeds that may grow into groceries or they may grow into the, the clouds and we'll go get that goose, right? 200,000 paying customers is all you have, not 500 million users. That's a tough one to sell. Not all unicorns have to IPO to be you know, winners or losers. There are some companies that you know, get acquired and they never come. When reflecting on unicorn IPOs, it's super important to say, when did they raise their last uh, round of funding? Are they successfully generating revenue at what growth rate? Is this a bad sign for the Bay Area that we're creating fewer unicorns on a year-over-year basis? Yes, because we're not drawing money in to give to employees, to give to buildings, to give to technology. We're running out of ideas in the Bay Area. We'll see how long it lasts, but it tends to lead towards a tech recession. I'm Rob Black. Making financial sense of your portfolio. Now, back to Rob Black and your money on AM 1220 KDOW. I hate that Tom Selleck is on television pushing people to do reverse mortgages. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Because he's Magnum. He's awesome. He's a god. He's someone we look up to. He's a TV celebrity. So, the idea of my mom, God, that Tom Selleck is a good-looking man. I think he's a good-looking man. I'm going to do a reverse mortgage because he's told me to do it. He's a good-looking man. Keep my mind. My mom's impaired mentally because she's had strokes. I hate it. When the Pope came to town a couple years ago in New York, suddenly they were selling papal pens. Papal pendants. 
on QVC. And my mom, she's mentally impaired, so she watches QVC and the Home Shopping Network. And she's like, get it down one time. Only the Pope has come to New York City. You can get your papal pendants for only forty nine ninety five. That's three payments of forty nine ninety five. You're like, whoa. A lot of people don't have that kind of money in retirement. Some do, some don't. I bring it up because my mom really isn't all that religious, and she hasn't been in 40, 50 years, and yet she gets lonely, and she watches a little TV, and she's like, papal pendants. And like the whole royal wedding, it nauseates me, because I know it's going to be on QVC and Home Shopping Network for years to come. You can get the royal pendants of the 2018 wedding of the century. Princess Markle becoming queen for a day. I see a lot of Americans just losing their, their, their skin. And their retirement skin, so to speak. The stuff that can change their, their life. To basically buy junk. So when I see... Magnum. Tom Selleck. Pushing reverse mortgages. It, it makes me cringe. People aren't, this industry, the financial industry is very leery of having people endorse. Because endorsements equal like, hey, I've, I've listened to Rob Black for years. I've trusted him. He's told me to stay in the market when things got ugly, and I stayed in the market. It worked out okay for me. So endorsements can kind of come back in funny ways. Like, you've got to be careful what you put your name on. Tom Selleck doesn't care. But I, do I think reverse mortgages are right for every uh, American? No. And reverse mortgages, you have to do a lot. You have to do a lot of education before you get approved. Do I think they're appropriate for some? Yeah. Mrs. Mitchell on my street, if she wants to die in that house, she has every right to die in that house. She probably has a million to two million dollars of equity. Why not use it? Why not tap it? It's expensive, number one. Why not sell it and move to Arizona? You could do that. That's probably a better idea for me. Cut your costs. But yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of the celebrity endorser. Even when there was um, Ben Stein who was endorsing, who was that guy, Lucia? He wasn't endorsing. Yeah, he was endorsing him. Bueller. So when Ben Stein, I grew up Bueller. hearing Bueller, 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 and then like, whoa, he's fiscally conservative and he's supporting, he's, he's helping a guy do seminars. It made me cringe. Not that I think you're dumb enough to go, that guy from Ben Stein, he's really smart. He is really smart on the economy and business. But do I want you taking advice from Joe Montana? Joe Montana? Hannah Montana? Hannah Montana. Or Joe Montana. Joe, Mon- Joe Montagna, the Italian actor. Joe Montana, the, the quarterback. Do I want you to go, I'm Joe Montana, and I've won five Super Bowls. And you should invest with Cletus. Cletus is the greatest investor of all time. What I did on the football field, he does in the stock market. You need a general. Back in my day, it was me and Jerry Rice. But we also had our coach. Some guy with white hair and glasses. Walsh, I think it was his name, who also coached at Stanford. Do I want Joe Montana giving financial advice or endorsements in the Bay Area? Hell no. Because a lot of people, like, that's as far as they're going to do their homework. And they don't know, did Joe Montana make a fee for speaking? Did he get a kickback? Does he really believe in what he's saying, or is he just reading copy? 
I have nothing against Joe, by the way. Nothing against Jerry Rice. Nothing against Ben Stein. I just, I think it's really, it makes me very, very cautious when I see that. So, and I want to share that with you. If you ever hear me pitching like cryptocurrencies, like, this is the best cryptocurrency ever. That should make you go, wait, wait, Rob's always said it's kind of a civil war. It's not appropriate for everyone. Consult a broker advisor for taking action on any cryptocurrencies at all. And sometimes Rob does stories where one analyst will say a cryptocurrency is going to go to 25000 and one analyst says it's going to go to zero. I don't know what to do. I don't either. That's a civil war to me. And since when you buy a cryptocurrency, you don't even get a banana. It makes me a little bit nervous. At least a lottery ticket, they give you a ticket. I guess you get a ticket, too, with that. Anyhow, you should respect my authority. 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. It's 800-516-1220. Anything you want to talk about, we can talk about. We can talk about celebrity endorsements. Sony did something kind of cool. They spent $2.3 billion for EMI, and they've become the biggest music publisher in the world. I don't know what that means yet, but they picked up 2 million songs from artists such as Kanye West, Sam Smith, and Sia. Tells me that the rise in digital streaming is also expanding songwriter royalty revenues, with Sony capturing value as a manager of the copyrights backed by direct deals that they have with companies like Spotify and Apple Music and Google Pay and SoundCloud and YouTube. EMI has about 15% of the music publishing industry. Sony is going to get bigger. That's going to give them 26% of the market share. And growing. Dun, dun, dun. Are they too big to stop? I don't think so. You know, you look at a company like YouTube, and I want to give them and Google a lot of props right now. They've changed TV with their Google YouTube uh, YouTube TV service. Apple's been talking about it for since Steve Jobs died six plus years ago, and Apple's really done nothing about it. And yet Google comes out and without a lot of fanfare, and we've been waiting for a long time for Apple TV, and was going to come, was going to go, but YouTube TV is actually killing. It's they're killing it. They're doing well. So for years, Apple said, we're going to be in there, we're going to be in there. But YouTube TV, Google's challenger to cable television, has simplified the process. It's created an inexpensive service for 30 to 40 bucks a month. That's the magic number that Apple was trying to get to in 2015. With YouTube TV, you get CNBC, CNN, AMC, FX, you get kind of what you need, and you get the sports channels as well. Uh, YouTube TV, you are killing it. Congratulations. Apple TV, not so much. Your comments and questions are always welcome. Visit Rob Black online at robblack.com. Now, back to Rob Black and your money on AM 1220 KDOW. 
Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black, talking money, investing, and more. Joining me now, Patrick O'Hare, briefing.com. Always a favorite feature of the week. How are you, Mr. O'Hare? Hey, Rob. I'm doing well, thanks. Good to be back with you. Good to be here, and uh, thanks for picking up the phone, so to speak. Um, stock market is always our focus, and uh, it's been an interesting year. We seem to do it and be doing a little bit of a yo-yo, but things are slowing down a bit. Where are we as we start to head towards the half point of the year, in your opinion? Um, you know, all in all, I'd say that the market is is doing okay. Um, you know, we obviously have had just such huge gains off those 2009 lows and, you know, had a nice year last year. And, uh, and obviously we had a great start to this year that was quickly unwound. Um, but at this juncture, you know, the S&P 500 is up a little more than 2% year-to-date on the, on the price index. And so when you account for dividends, I mean, your total return is probably close to, you know, 4% uh, through uh, not even the first half of the year, which is, which is not bad. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of people have gotten, uh, the expectations have gotten ahead of themselves given the, the nature of past returns here and this sense that the, uh, you know, this bull market, you know, won't face any headwinds. But, you know, the fact of the matter is this bull market is, is starting to face headwinds. And I think that that has slowed some of its momentum and it has had, uh, investors starting to, um, you know, question the, the changing physiology of this bull market, uh, such that they're no longer as willing to eagerly pay up for earnings as they did in the past. But, um, but you don't have a down market right now. Uh, you just have a market that's generating some modest returns and uh, one that seems to be fairly range-bound here over the last several months. So what's going to be the breaking point? Is it going to be something we see coming? Will it be the interest rate creep? Will it be a trade war? Which I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic on that one in large part uh, because I guess I'm sarcastic and thinking that all trade wars are just political wrangling to get in front of your people and say that you, you you put the old U.S. to the test or you put Korea to the test or you put China to the test. I did my job. But what's going to be the thing that unwinds us? It's, it's tough to see at this point in time other than valuations. Yeah, well, I think the the ultimate spoiler uh, is going to be interest rates. Um, it tends to be the case, you know, uh, where you get uh, the Fed, you know, Moving in a, in a in a hawkish manner, such that you know interest rates rise to a point where you start seeing a slowdown in consumption, and you start seeing a slowdown in loan demand, and you start seeing you know banks get tighter with their lending standards, and then uh, you know, and then you're potentially you know experience a recession or certainly a slower period of economic growth that diminishes the pace of earnings growth. Um, you know, when when do you hit that? ultimate inflection point, that is hard to say, but just in terms of your actual question, I think that you know, the answer itself is, is going to boil down to the path of interest rates. That will be the spoiler for the bull market. Um, and at this juncture, though, uh, you know, the bull market has been able to tolerate the increase in rates that we've seen so far, and um, you know, because you've seen them, uh, I think as you alluded to in your question, they've kind of been creeping higher uh, as opposed to really rocketing higher. Um, and if you get a the spike in interest rates, well, then uh, then you, I think you see a stock market that 
that becomes more troublesome. But uh, but with the creep higher in interest rates, uh, there's uh, a reasonable basis to validate that move as a reflection of of an improving economic environment and a reflection of the fact that you don't need monetary policy that's you know. At a, you know emergency provision levels, uh, you know the Fed has been taking back some of that uh, aggressive uh, easing that it implemented during the financial crisis, uh, and it sounds pretty resolute about its uh, ability to continue to raise interest rates here as it sees uh, the economy evolving in a, in a favorable manner. And so the market's going to have to continue to contend with uh, the Fed raising rates, um, but it's going to have to also battle with this notion of will the Fed raise rates too much too soon and uh, and therefore choke off an economic recovery here and, and choke off the bull market. When our kids are in school, we go to work and we show them this is what dad does for a living, and we're moving into the summer months where the kids are out of school. and. We show them how cool dad is by taking them to the beach or something like that. And Wall Street seems to fall prey to lower volume because professionals are away from their desks, so to speak. Is there anything that you see coming in the summer that plays out like um, into the less volume, less trading? Do you, are, you, are you predicting anything for the summer compared to other summers? You know, a few weeks ago in the big picture column that I wrote, uh, you know, I wrote a piece that suggested that the, the stock market is kind of stuck in its own, you know, wrestling in its own cage match, you know, because it's okay. looking out ahead uh, through these summer months, the early summer months, uh, and uh, finding some reasons to, I guess, show a lack of conviction, if you will. Um, you know, one of those reasons was the understanding that you had the best uh, quarter of earnings growth in the first quarter uh, in uh, in roughly eight years, and yet the market didn't seem to respond all that aggressively to the very good earnings news. And so you had this question of, you know, if you can't rally on that type of earnings news, you know, what will you rally on? And so that's an, a question that I think is kind of held. Uh, back some of the buying conviction. You still have the overhang, notwithstanding some of the most recent headlines. You have the overhang still of, you know, tariff wars or threats of tariff wars that are going to be out there. You have the overhang of concerns about rising input costs and a tightening labor market fueling inflation pressures, possibly. You have the concern about there being uh, increased political rancor or political populism as you uh, start seeing the campaigning for the midterm election heats up, heating up. Um, and then, of course, you, know, you also have this, you know, this increased competition factor for stocks in the form of higher short-term uh, and risk-free interest rates uh, that are providing some some new degree of comfort level, I think, for investors who uh, don't necessarily want to contend with the volatility of the stock market and can see a you know short-term risk-free rate of return that's that's attractive in the treasury market. And so, so there's some things out there I think here that you know we'll kind of hold back the the stock market here in the in the in the summer months. And of course, you just have that seasonal factor as you allude to, where you know volumes tend to go down as as vacation schedules pick up. You and I are roughly the same age, I believe. When I got into this industry 20-plus years ago, I didn't give a two cents about bonds because I was young. I was thinking growth long-term. I got plenty of time ahead of me. Uh, tech stocks were doing great. Financials were doing great. The stock market was doing great. So bonds didn't make any sense. But as I'm getting older and pushing a little bit longer in the lifespan, 
um, and rates start creeping up, should I start paying more attention to bonds and interest rates and getting some income versus the stock market? Because I've always kind of seen that 10-year treasury as unattractive under 3.5%. It's been under 3.5% for a long time. What are your thoughts on um, getting older and caring a little bit more about interest rates? Yeah. Well, I I think uh, that really does boil down to time horizon and risk tolerance. And, you know, I'd point you to the remark made by Warren Buffett not that long ago, just a few weeks ago, I think, where, you know, he said if you, you know, if he had the choice between buying the S&P 500 index or buying a 10-year U.S. Treasury or 30-year U.S. Treasury, you know, it would take him less than a nanosecond to buy the S&P 500 index, right? Uh, Because he thinks that, you know, because he thinks bonds are going to go down a lot, which he means, you know, you know, bond prices are going to go down a lot, and you know, and while yields yields will go up, uh, the the key, of course, is um, you know, do you have the, the patience to basically maintain that uh, investment to maturity, where you you know you won't lose principal, but uh, but I think also what Mr. Buffett is is arguing in favor of is that stocks have uh, far superior inflation adjusted rates of return than than do treasuries. So you really have to be aware of what your risk tolerance is and your time horizon is, uh, you know, uh, as it relates to allocating significant portions of, of, of an investment portfolio, I think, to, to the fixed income market at this at this at these levels, which of course have been we've gotten to off of a what a thirty year bull market for treasuries. Um, so uh, so that's a factor to, to take account of, but they certainly provide some risk free peace of mind, obviously, uh, for a lot of investors. So they they have their value. You just need to know what your own time horizon and risk tolerances are uh, to to capitalize on that particular um, that particular value. <laughs> Sounds good. There's a lot going on with choices on ETFs, index funds, mutual funds, and then you start getting individual stocks. And then we start learning millennials are pretty demanding when they shop, and the future of McDonald's and the future of Starbucks all depends on the millennials. And there's a lot going on. As a, a father, is there any advice you've started to think about one day giving your kids? Or... Or am I barking up the wrong window? You, you'll let them figure it out when they figure it out. Yeah, no, you know, it, it, well, some things you do have to figure out on your own. But you know, one of the things you know you can certainly advocate for for younger kids these days uh, certainly is the importance of saving. Um, because uh, I know right now, as a 46 year old, that if if all these prognostications hold out, when it comes time to collect, you know, Social Security at the you know age of 65 or what have you, um, right. my benefits are going to be reduced because there's not enough there to, to pay the full allotment that, you know, people are getting now. So so you do need to be more conscientious about saving these days because um, you just don't know what's going to be there <laughs> when the retirement uh, card gets played. You're always a great interviewer. Thanks so much. Briefing.com's Patrick O'Hare. He starts today with page one. He talks about interest rates and inflation and what's moving the markets. He reads through the journal. He gives you ideas, thoughts, insights. He ends the week with a great column as well, the big picture. You can find out more about briefing at briefing.com. It's briefing.com and Patrick O'Hare talking the markets.
Visit Rob Black online at robblack.com. Now, back to Rob Black and your money on AM 1220 KDOW. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial money, investing, and more. McDonald's is doing what they can to stay relevant. You'd imagine that the Big Mac maker has kept that consistency for years and years and years and years, and we loved it. My parents were like, take Rob to McDonald's, get him a burger and fries, and he's all good. And then 20 years later, I start making babies, and I'm like, take the kid. No, don't. Fried food's no good. Fried food used to be okay. Fried food, no good. It's like the egg. There's a study out now that says one egg a day will cut down your chances of cardiovascular disease and dying of a stroke by something like 75%. That's enormous. But I grew up in a world where eggs were high in cholesterol. Are they or aren't they? Things keep changing, right? And you're wondering, like, did the lobbyists get to, did the lobbyists get to someone? But one egg a day can help cut down it. Like, whoa, there's too much to think about. So McDonald's is being sucked into the movement to ban plastic straws. And it's worthy of note. Starbucks has set aside $10 million to award grants to inventors in their quest for a compost, compostable coffee cup. Dunkin' Donuts is nixing plastic foam cups from its locations worldwide by 2020. Chipotle said it's going to cut waste from packaging and leftover food destined for landfills in half by 2020. Millennials want, millennials will get. More Americans are struggling to pay their credit cards. More late payments. Credit cards are easy to do late payments because it's not like the bank's going to come and take your materials away from you like they would of your house with late payments. Hawaii's volcano eruption is driving away millions in tourism dollars. That makes me want to go to Hawaii. But uh, so far, the closure just of Hawaii Volcanoes National Park has cost the island $166 million. And bookings are down anywhere between 40 and 60%, whether it be on cruise ships or for rooms on the island. A lot going on. Let's bring in CFP Chad Burton. He did the show this morning from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. here on AM 1220 KDOW. Let's get some financial planning insights from the king. So, for king? example, let's say you're making you're, you're 25, you got a great degree. You're in programming, something like that. You're making seventy grand a year per paycheck. You need to be saving four hundred and twenty dollars a month at age twenty-five, so you can get to two times your salary by thirty-five. So, what does that assume? Basically, assumes you're going to get invested in stocks and that your stocks are going to grow at seven percent. Now, that's not how things work. The, the market has averaged ten to eleven percent over the last hundred years, but it's never straight up. It's not, you know, I mean, well, the last eight years has been, but it's not typically how it works. It's usually, you know, seven out of ten years are positive, three out of ten are negative. But let's say you assume from 25 to 35, you're going to average 7% in stocks, and you're going to save that amount of money, $420 a month. That basically equates to about 13 to 14% of your, your pay. Let's, let's just round it to 15%. So what do you save in? If you say, okay, I want to do this, I need to stay on track for retirement, so I know I need to pay myself first, am I going to be financially successful? I know that 420 per paycheck is my target. So what would I do with that? If I was starting out at that number, and I wish I made 70000 right out of college, that would have been great back then. 
but in the Bay Area, you know, that's that that might be the going rate. So let's talk about that. Seventy thousand dollars, and let's say you're in a four hundred one k. First of all, make sure you get into a company that has a four hundred one k that has a match. And let's say you have a four percent match, and even if a company just has a minimum safe harbor plan, it's usually dollar for dollar for the first. Uh, you know, 2% and then 50 cents on the dollar after that, something like that. So basically, if you put in 6%, they're going to match 4%. Let's just round it to that. That's your, that's your first 10%. So that gets you close that you can say, if I put 6% into my 401k, I'll get a match of 4% of my pay. So essentially, I'll have 10% of my pay going in. So if I'm going to do that starting out again, and I think taxes are very low right now, and I think taxes are going to go up in the future, I'm going to put my 6% deferral into the Roth 401k, and the employer match is going to go into the regular side of the 401k. So I'm building up both pre-tax and no, and total tax-free dollars. That's what I would do. But that only gets me to 10%. So I have 5% left over. And if I have 5% left over... I need to put $291 per month or equate that to paycheck, $145 per paycheck into a Roth IRA. So how do you do that? Go to, I don't care where you go, Vanguard, T. Rowe Price, uh, go to TD Ameritrade and open up a Roth IRA account, find a good ETF, exchange-traded fund. They have a whole bunch of commission-free funds and you put your first $145 in there, you buy one of those ETFs, and then you call TD Ameritrade and say, I'm going to be sending 145 bucks every two weeks into this account, so set up an automatic purchase of this ETF or fund for me. Or you can do that with a specific T. Rowe Price mutual fund or Vanguard mutual fund. Typically, though, in, the, in some of the Vanguard funds, you have to first save up your first $1,000 before you make that initial purchase and then sign up for at least 50 bucks a month. But I can't tell you in the 24 years that I've been in the business, the people that have been have created so much wealth in order to be able to retire is because they started saving systematically at a very young age. They started saving in their 401k as soon as it was available, $2,000 a year into IRAs back when that was the limit, and then they would set up a monthly automatic purchase or they'd buy some stock and automatically reinvest their dividends. I've seen more wealth that way than any other way. The second way I've seen the most wealth is people that created a business and continued to build that business over time. And while they were doing the systematic savings and building business, they tended to buy positive cash flow real estate, not flipping houses. Because flipping houses tends to do well for several years and then catch people on the downside when the real estate market cracks. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.